In late January, this past January, I received a telephone call from a woman who was looking for someone to talk to about something difficult. I was referred to the woman by a friend from my days over at Harvard Divinity School, now living in Watertown. In our brief conversation, I sensed a profound earnestness and an undeniable immediacy in her voice. We agreed to meet later that week. And she has generously consented to letting me share a bit of her story, provided her identity remains confidential. To that end, let us call her Rose. Rose is in her mid-fifties and works as a certified massage therapist. She is married and has three children in college. In early January, Rose was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease in this country. ALS is a progressive, usually fatal, disease caused by the degeneration of the nerve cells in the central nervous system that control voluntary muscle movement. Over a period of a few years, the disorder causes muscle weakness and atrophy throughout the body as both upper and lower body motor neurons degenerate and stop sending muscles, stop sending messages to the muscles. Without nerve impulses, the muscles stop moving and gradually weaken. A patient may ultimately lose the ability to initiate and control all voluntary movement, bladder and bowel sphincters and the muscles responsible for eye movement are usually but not always spared. Rose is a lively, articulate woman with a wry sense of humor, a bright woman in the prime of life. I'm certain that she would have been successful at anything she attempted. She describes her decision to study massage and become a therapist much the way I have heard colleagues describe their call to their vocation. She is a, as dedicated to her work and her clients as she is to her husband and her children. The something difficult that prompted Rose to contact me was not the onset of this terrible disease, nor the challenges she will face as she begins to lose motor function. For the time being, she has only told her husband of her diagnosis, and her motor loss is localized in one leg and not very noticeable. No, of all the things I guessed might be troubling her, once I learned of her diagnosis, I was surprised to learn what was actually troubling Rose. For the first time in her life, Rose was contemplating her death and wondering whether or not there was an afterlife. She is grappling with her mortality as never before, and she is filled with questions. Is there life after death? If there is life, will she remember her earthly life? Will she get to watch over her children? Will she be reunited with her grandparents? Has she lived well enough to see heaven, if there is indeed such a place? And what about hell? With candor 
and spirit. And the trace of a gleam in her eye, she confesses that she is no angel. Thoughts like these come to her in the still of the night, and she is filled with wonder. As a Unitarian Universalist, I am sometimes envious of friends and families whose faith traditions offer them more definitive ideas about the afterlife. My mom confided in me uh, quite a few years ago now her hopes and her concerns about how things might go in the afterlife. She was confident she'd be reunited with loved ones who preceded her in death. For mom, the idea of being reunited with loved ones evoked both eagerness and not a little dread. At times, Unitarian Universalists might feel like outsiders yearning for some assurance, some reassurance that our, our life is never really over, that it continues after death. And we labor under the misguided impression that good Unitarian Universalists don't believe in an afterlife, that life is over when the heart starts beating. As a result, many of us at times feel bereft of hope. Our minds rebel against the thought that our brief day on earth is all that there is. We UUs have been seduced by a dreadful misconception. Contrary to popular notions, Unitarian Universalists embrace not one, but many beliefs about the afterlife. It's true that our faith tradition offers no doctrine about the afterlife. That only means that there's no single teaching we all accept. When we say that Unitarian Universalism teaches nothing about the afterlife, that doesn't mean that the afterlife is nothing. Having no definitive answer is different from saying that the answer is no. We simply don't know. And of course, it's only as a group that we don't have an answer. Individual Unitarian Universalists have a wide range of beliefs about the afterlife. Some of us here this morning believe there is a peaceful place where some will be reunited with their loved ones and for others, conversely, a place of utter pain and separation. Others believe in some version of reincarnation. Some do believe that we cease to exist when our ticker stops. And still others believe that our beloved dead remain alive in our hearts and minds, in memory and in influence. And although we may believe in life after death, we still say that what happens after we die is not as important as what happens while we live. The crucial phase of our existence is between our physical birth and our physical death. When we visit a cemetery, we note on many tombstones the dash in between the date of birth and the date of death. It is the dash, precisely, that is the most critical part of that designation. It is during that span of our earthly years that we are urged to grow our souls, to become the people life intended us to be. Take, take the Hasidic tale of Rabbi Zuzia, 
who on his deathbed said, In the world to come, they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, Why were you not Zuzia? If you think about it, Rabbi Zuzia's idea, ideas of what we might be asked at the end of our days, really do not tell us anything about the afterlife. They are about this life, what we did in this world. When we, you use talk about the world to come, we have a tendency to really be talking about a better here and now. At General Assembly 2008 in Fort Lauderdale, I had the privilege to listen to the well-known UU minister and author, Forrest Church, who has terminal cancer, as he spoke to a packed room about death in general and his own death in particular. Being an agnostic about the afterlife, I look for salvation here, he said, not to be saved from life, but to be saved by life, in life, for life. Such salvation, he went on, has three dimensions. Integrity, or individual wholeness, comes when we make peace with ourselves. Reconciliation, or shared wholeness, comes when we make peace with our neighbors, especially with our loved ones. Redemption, in the largest sense, comes when we make peace with life and death, with being itself, with God. All our lives end in the middle of the story. There is ongoing business left unfinished, isn't there? We leave the stage before discovering how the story will turn out. We leave the pool before the party's over. In the meantime, however, to help ensure a good exit, one thing is fully within our power. We can take care of unfinished business here and now. We can make peace with ourselves, reconcile where possible with our loved ones, and free ourselves to say yes to the cosmos, to embrace our lives and deaths, to make peace with God, our ultimate concern. We may not understand any better than before who we are or why we are here, but for this fleeting moment, the one instant we can bank on, our life becomes what Forest Church calls a sacrament of praise. Like the tale of Rabbi Zuzia, our reading this morning from Sum by David Eagleman tells us much more about this life and what we do in this world than anything about some afterlife. By reshuffling life's events, Eagleman invites us to reflect on how we are using our time. What if we could generate a year-end account of our decisions, actions, and how we spent our time the way we generate a year-end accounting of how we spend our money? A sort of metaphysical equivalent to QuickBooks. Maybe it could be called Quick Life. Would I be satisfied with the results if at the end of each year a software program could generate a spreadsheet that categorized everything I'd done in the span of a year, neatly sorted and totaled into columns? How much time did I spend worrying, 
How much time did I spend being grateful or joyous or generous? If I died and found myself in Eagleman's afterlife, how many hours, days, or possibly months would I have spent overeating? How much time being skeptical of ideas, proposals, and suggestions, and people's gestures of goodwill? How much time would I spend saying, sorry, but I can't? What about heartfelt embraces? Minutes? Hours? Days? Would I spend more time complaining about the ills I saw around me or working towards ameliorating them? Would I spend more time thinking about the love I lost or loving the life I had? Lillian Hellman, the celebrated American playwright, was widely acclaimed as one of America's foremost dramatists. She had over a dozen notable plays to her credit. One would think that she would have considered herself, her life, a resounding success. Yet she titled her autobiography, An Unfinished Woman. In the book, she explained this puzzling title. All I mean is that I left too much of me unfinished because I wasted too much time. Lillian Hellman realized that her life was only partially lived. She could have made much more of her gifts and her days. Our challenge then, or one of them, is to ask ourselves honestly if we are tapping our full potential as human beings we probably will discover that we have been a little too wrapped up in ourselves. If I can admit that I've spent too much time pursuing self-interested ends, it's challenging to satisfy the ego's lust for more. If we waste our days in trivial and superficial matters, today is a great day to try something new. Today may be the day to chart a new course. And charting new courses and making changes isn't as difficult as it sounds. We can change by reaching out simply to a person in need with a warm smile. We can change by offering an attentive ear, a caring phone call, an invitation into our home, a personal visit, we can change by contributing a more generous portion of our disposable income to the organizations that foster the goals that improve the lives of others. We can change by striving to be like those who each week faithfully tend to the homebound or participate in programs that reach out into this community to sow the seeds of our liberal faith. There is so much work to be done on earth that we shouldn't worry too much about what will happen to us after we die. As we ponder our earthly journey, whether it be brief or long, let's not focus too much on our standard of living that we neglect our standards of life. One of the most humbling experiences I face as a minister is preparing and offering a eulogy 
In a matter of moments, I am called upon to capture a person's essence and help a family commit their loved one to memory. Nearly every time, it is the deceased's core values and how they passed on those values to others that family and friends remember. While sitting in living rooms with grieving families, I have learned time and again that it is how we live in this world that guides us into eternity. If you really want to bring eternity into your life, think about how you want to be remembered. Think about your eulogy. What would you like your family members to say about you and your life? What kind of spouse or parent would you like their words to reflect? How do you want to be described as a son or a daughter? What kind of friend were you? What kind of colleague? What qualities would you like them to have seen in you? What did they love about you? What contributions would you want to be remembered for? What difference would you like to have made in the lives of the people you leave behind? The courage we will need to face the end, and possibly an afterlife should there be one, won't come at the end. It comes gradually. It comes as we make honest choices. It comes as we take responsibility for our lives. It comes as we face our own demons, as we reach out across the great divide to touch hands and make peace. This, my friends, is our common labor, living a life that matters. Bless you.